Our scripture reading for this morning is Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'll say it again. My name is Sid. Um, I'm glad, we're glad to be with you, whether you're here in person or virtually with us on YouTube. Um, if you're new to North Cross Church, uh, maybe this is your first week. Maybe this is your first week in a while. Maybe this is your first couple of weeks. We're really glad you're here, too, and we want you to feel welcomed. Um, and also, for those of you who are here again, uh, thank you for coming. Thanks for being a part of our community, and we're really thankful to be with you. And I'll say this at the end, too, but we're going to hang out outside afterwards. Please join us for that. Uh, it's a good time to kind of catch up with each other. So this week, we're starting a new sermon series, uh, and we're going to march verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we'll likely be in this letter for a while, kind of taking the occasional break for um, Easter and Advent and Lent and in the summer. And so you might be asking, why are we studying this letter of all letters at this time in the world and in the church? Uh, well, I could tell you about how I went away for a week and, and prayed by myself and um, thought about what I, what I needed to hear, what we needed to hear, and that would be fine to talk about. Uh, I could also give you a list of compelling reasons. They'd have to be three reasons because I'm a Presbyterian pastor, but I, would, I could still give you the, the list of reasons. Um, but I'd like to instead tell you a story that I think might frame why we're looking at Ephesians it was late August, and the year was 1963, and a young preacher turned civil rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr., was faced with an extremely difficult speech. He was asked to speak to 250,000 people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial and kind of flooding and crowding through into the mall in the Washington, D.C. And the topic he was to tackle was daunting. He had to talk about ending racism in the United States, ending racism especially in civil voting rights for freedom and also economic opportunities for jobs. He needed to reach out to, his, to the white allies. He needed to rebut the hardliners like Malcolm X as well as respond to President Kennedy's recent civil rights bill all in seven minutes or less. <laughs> Martin Luther King and his aides spent hours writing a taut, skillful speech with the utterly forgettable title, Normalcy Never Again. Who's ever heard of that? Normalcy Never Again. In the shadow of the giant statue of the seated Abraham Lincoln, a hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Martin Luther King begins this speech by appealing to how America has defaulted on the promise of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And from there, King read a speech, this prepared speech that was part poetry, part legalese, and the crowd was just getting more and more restless. But finally, he kind of makes a biblically slightly stirring allusion to God's justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And King looks up from his carefully crafted manuscript and he decides just to take a huge risk. And he starts improvising in front of a quarter of a million people with every major news outlet watching. And his friends and colleagues that are kind of standing behind Martin Luther King in the background, they knew that he stepped away from his speech. 
and they saw what he was doing at this moment of maximum danger and maximum opportunity. And so at the climax of his speech, Martin Luther King is looking for something to say. And so his friend and the singer, Mahalia Jackson, cried out, tell them about the dream, Martin. And so she was referencing something that King had been preaching to congregations about a brighter future, about America, a better America, in which whites and blacks lived in harmony. And so there and then and from the heart, King said, I have a dream. A dream that America would live up to the words that all men are created equal, that America would be an oasis of freedom and justice, that little black boys and little black girls would hold hands with little white girls and little white boys, that I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. What is so compelling, what's so moving about Martin Luther King Jr. telling us about his dream? I don't know about you, but when I wake up and someone says, hey, let me tell you about the dream I had last night, that's not where I tune in. <laughs> I've learned that no one really wants to hear my dream either. What, is, what makes it arguably, though, what makes this speech in particular one of the most famous speeches uttered in the English language? I think there are two things. First, it's powerful to hear what people care about the most. That's sacred ground, right? It's so powerful to hear that. In a leadership book that I'm reading way too slowly, there is an author named Edwin Friedman, and he has this great thing where he says, every leader needs to gather all the employees and all the volunteers they work, they work with, and they need to deliver their I have a dream speech and get people on the same page and align in their organization. Side note, that's what we're doing with this series, and that's what I'm doing even this morning. But whether or not that speech, that dream speech will fall flat or have staying power has to do with the second thing, it can't just be personal passion. It has to be about deep truth. King painted this picture, this vision of a better world grounded in biblical ideas of what true equality would mean, speeding us to the day when we'll all join hands and sing free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, free at last. And King asked his audience to live into that picture of heaven come to earth. The letter to the Ephesians is God's I have a dream speech. It is God's picture, his vision of what equality and freedom and community actually are. But it's a broader dream than just for America. It's for a worldwide church. God is calling us to consciously and regularly gather and worship in his presence to be a living and breathing authentication of the power of the gospel message. And with that phrase from Ian Murray, what that means is that God's church is meant to embody Jesus in his act of rescue. For us in community, into true freedom and into true equality to embody that. But to live into God's even fuller picture of heaven come to earth, we have to acknowledge two truths. 
The first truth is pretty obvious, right? Many Christians find church the most difficult aspect of being Christian. Why? Because the church is full of it. It. The oh-so-human fighting, the cutoffs, the manipulation, abuse sometimes, giving up, giving in. The church has difficult and needy and very demanding people in it. Here's the second truth, though, and it's harder to, to see. It's not so obvious. We need to acknowledge it. We, you and I, are those difficult, <laughs> needy, and very demanding people. <laughs> and not only that, it's our demands, our dreams, that can get in the way of God's dream. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. Peterson, who I'm borrowing a lot from in this introduction, he puts it this way, the church we want becomes the enemy of the church we have. <laughs> the church we want becomes the enemy of the church we have. We can tell the kind of church that we want by the top items on our list for the church improvement project, right? Uh, this has been so, so good for me to study as a pastor because when I look around, that's all I see. I see a beat up, barely standing, fixer-upper of a church, and I like to dream a dream like many before you for repairing it in my own strength, right? And here's, here's three things not to do that I found that were helpful to look at for myself, and maybe you will resonate with some of these. What the church really needs is a moral paint job. Let's start by cleaning up people's outsides and clearing out the people that we can't get clean or at least hiding them from sight. That'll make it more easy and sellable. Or what the church needs is just some more excitement, right? We need change to happen faster and, and to happen, and we need to feel better, and we need to get busier and fast. We need, we need less suffering and more fun and positive hits. Or maybe third, and finally, I fall into that success trap, and I think we all do too. I'm turning to market analysis and self-appointed experts, measuring growth mainly by efficiency and numbers and customer relations. But my point is not, and I, I want you to hear this very clearly, my point is not, um, I, don't, I don't want you to take away, hey, Sid's telling me don't make North Cross or the church better. I, I hope we want to do that. God forbid that I'd be up here saying, you know, not wanting to dream about the church. Yet I also want to question and push, and I think this text is going to do that for us, that sometimes uh, North Cross and God's global church shouldn't look like a spiritualized version of the suburbs. Right? Whether it's like a more Christian Chick-fil-A, if that's possible, or kindred, or a country club, or a gritty dive bar. What if God intentionally chooses to be present in our world through a congregation of embarrassingly ordinary people? What if God does not work apart from sinful and flawed and forgiven men and women, mostly without credentials? But why? How is it that God, how is that God's I have a dream? Because the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus, whose birth and life and death and even resurrection in the words of Eugene Peterson are a miracle that didn't look like a miracle. A miracle 
in the form of powerless and the vulnerable and the unimportant. I just think about Jesus's life. He had no Roman political advisors, no engineers to make his ministry look and sound relevant. No one carried him about in a litter on their shoulders with hype men and hype women going in front of him, right? There was no Jesus, Jewish priestly bodyguard to keep Jesus spiritually pure and culturally important. Jesus and his early church weren't always entirely family friendly. In other words, Jesus was not so very different than any random congregation you can look up on Google. And that's on purpose. It's an ordinary looking miracle. And so the title and approach of our sermon series in Ephesians is this. Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. And really Ephesians chapter one and these first two verses here just introduce and expand on this theme. They ask us, whose dream of the church are you believing in? Whose dream is it? And they show us the answer. God's dream is for a church to reflect Jesus. The church is to reflect Jesus. That's his dream. How? By his supernatural will and with his gracious peace. God's dream is for the church to reflect Jesus with his supernatural will and with his gracious peace. So we're gonna take each of these ways and, and, and we should imagine Jesus in turn. And this is gonna be our outline for the sermon this morning in case you're looking for it. It can be projected behind me or also in your e-bulletin. First, verse one, we're gonna look at the power we need to reflect Jesus, God's supernatural will. Second, verse two, we're gonna look at the gifts we need to reflect Jesus, God's grace and peace. First, the power of God's supernatural will. Second, the gifts of God's grace and peace. Um, and so before we do that though, I'd like to take a moment and just pray for us to collect our thoughts and hearts around this passage. Let's do that. Father, thank you for these words to us from you this morning. And I just pray that you would use them, that you'd stir us, stir us up, challenge us, comfort us, redirect us, make us to lay down. And Father, I'm thankful for these words to us, as simple as they seem and the power that they hold. And I pray that you would use them once again, like you've used them for thousands of years, to change our very hearts, to change our very minds, to make us better people when we walk out of this room. You can do that. We pray that you'd meet us wherever we are, even with that idea. And even with you, Jesus, would you meet us? In your name we pray. Amen. So verses one and two kind of serve two simultaneous purposes. Uh, the first is what I would sort of call what Charlotte from Charlotte Webb calls a salutation. Okay? So it's just a salutation saying, Paul says, hello, my name is, and you are, and nice to see you again. That's really all he's doing in these first couple of verses. The other purpose, though, as we hinted at earlier, is a bit deeper. Beginning even in verse one, God through Paul is introducing the power and the gifts that we as God's people, his church, need to reflect Jesus to become a new and different kind of community. But that word community, 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 community. Okay, that word, there's a part of me that can just like get so mixed up in reaction about that word. There's a part of me that just hungers for it 
My lips smack about the prospect of being known and knowing others, about getting honest and speaking at a heart level and connecting, feeling heard, or at least partially understood, and then doing the same for other people. That is so appealing. At the same time, there's another part of me that winces when I remember a recently wounded relationship in community or rolls my eyes. Yet another speaker from the front having another soundbite about this word, community. Yes, this is now an out-of-body experience for those of you. I am the speaker up front. Anyway, yet the brilliance of this verse in verse 1 and really the whole of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that it diagnoses our longings for community as well as our shames and fears and cynicism about community. Paul shows and tells a lot in a very short phrase. So instead of kind of rolling out his formal three full names, kind of in a sort of burst of Roman pomp and circumstance, he just introduces himself as Paul, which is so relatable. You know, Paul, that known and noble man, um, he, he would have been known to these, these people. He lived with them for three years. He has cried with them at funerals. He has, he has held them when they lost their jobs. He has rejoiced at their births and baptisms and job promotions. This Paul, though, same Paul, is also an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That is, Paul offers a very human picture of community, a kind of been there sort of authenticity and relatability. At the same time, he's also offering this deeper purpose and power. Paul belongs to and represents Jesus Christ. When he speaks, he speaks for God. In fact, his words in this letter are inspired by the Holy Spirit and in Jesus's name. Paul is an apostle. He is one who has witnessed, witnessed firsthand the resurrected Christ and that resurrected Christ has personally sent him out. In and with that power, that kind of overcoming natural scientific laws kind of power, right? And if I'm honest, my hope for community has been most exhausted by gatherings of people who are supposed to be my people, but lack divinely inspired resurrection power, right? The reason I've gotten together with friends over a shared hobby, like a sport or a kind of music, the reason I've gotten together with neighbors because we live on the same street, even the reason I've gotten together with family and extended family, right? Because we share the same DNA and the same homes and the same holiday traditions. All of these pale in comparison to what a new community founded in Jesus's resurrection power can actually offer us. How can get me here and ultimately keep me here? Our music and our prayers, our conversations and our scripture readings, our meals together are powered by the same will, the same will that brought a dead man back to life again. But I know I know, church can feel so shabby, and I'm gonna say it, hopeless sometimes. Yet I love how that professor, a uh, covenant professor uh, named Hans Baer answered his friends. His friends asked him, how can you go year after bone wearying year 
to this, these former Soviet Union countries with so much despair and they're so economically depressed, bringing the word of God. And this is what Hans Baer said. God's word is real, and yet it is yet God's will to use his people who believe in his word to overcome overwhelming challenges. God changes the world by his will. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? <laughs> I mean, do you live as if that were true? I mean, most of the time. Are you, at, are you internally crying, help my unbelief? Or maybe you're thinking, well, at least I want to try to, or I want to want to show up again in a difficult, despairing space. Then according to verse one, you are saints and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Or a better translation, you are saints and believers in Jesus Christ. How? Why? The theologian John Calvin puts it really well. No man, therefore, is a believer who is also not a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is also not a believer. Believers and saints are one and the same. But how does God change the world by his will? What exactly are we to believe and live for again? Final question. What makes true community of the church actually work? The answer to all these questions is the same, and it's found in verse two. The gift of God's grace and peace. The second point and final point in our outline. Notice, I said gift and not gifts. That's because grace and peace are sort of a package deal in the Bible. They typically go together. You, know, you hear, it's sort of almost like you could think of like a gracious peace or a peace-filled grace. They're sort of a, that sort of connected. And grace and peace are part of something bigger. They're a one-two punch of what God the Father did through his, in history through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation accomplished, right? And how God is at work still working in us this salvation today into the very fiber of our lives. Salvation applied. And because they, these things are accomplished, grace and peace is accomplished outside of us and applied by someone other than us to us, that is God, grace and peace are received and not achieved. They're received and not achieved. It's actually an order. Grace is first, always, then peace. It's peace through grace. That's how it works. Scotty Smith puts it well. We enjoy God's peace to the extent we experience God's grace. We enjoy God's peace to the extent we experience God's grace. But that can feel pretty abstract. And so what I wanna do is ground that idea into the definitions of these very churchy words, grace and peace. Can we talk about that for a second? A favorite definition of God's grace recently for me comes from the singer-songwriter Michael Card. Grace is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Grace is that idea that when a person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And according to Ephesians verse two, God our Father is that person and he gives me everything through his son and my spiritual older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But what is the everything that God is giving me and giving you when I can rightly expect the opposite? What is it? God's everything is his peace. What a right relationship with God, a right relationship with ourselves, a right relationship with other people and this world, what they actually feel like is peace. Isn't that amazing? What one commentator rightly describes as the smile of God as it reflects itself in our hearts. The hearts of his spiritual children. The deep down sense, this is what peace is, the deep down sense that God is actually fond of us that you are not his chore. You are his delight. And we enjoy more and more of this peaceful, easy feeling the more we stop trying to justify our existence, the more we stop trying to prove I'm worth your while by the ways that we are successful or the ways that we're right or the way that our lives are, are, are stressless and comfortable. But where do we start? How do we begin to experience more grace and enjoy more peace? Paul wisely doesn't give us a command to do in the first two verses of his, of his letter. Because that's what we'd expect. That's what we're telling ourselves. He said, go and do this. No, Paul asked God to give and for us to receive his grace and his peace. And let's be honest. We need both so badly, <laughs> right? Even right now. We need the warm and sunny smile of peace. The, we need the sort of you can rest easiness of grace. And the, but these can get so quickly consumed by our own internal demands. My dreams for my life and for everyone else's life around me. And while I'm at it, my dreams for God's plan here on this planet. So I really appreciate the way that the Yale professor, Lori Santos, puts our human problem at the beginning of every single episode of the Happiness Lab podcast. She says it every time, she says this. Our minds are constantly telling us what to do to be happy. But what if our minds are wrong? What if our minds are lying to us and leading us away from what will really make us happy? That is, perhaps it's our dreams for what we think we should be that can go often get in the way of seeing God's dream for what is. And how it's being slow, what God is doing slowly working out in front of us and among us. Like here, in our midst, and in the world, in God's true community, in the church. Let me put all this another way, and I'll end with it. Uh, so this has been a long slog, hasn't it? COVID 2019, COVID 19 is now COVID 2021. <laughs> Here we are again wearing face masks. Um, and but kind of in the last several months, there's been this real these highlights for me and, and these pockets of light. Um, there's a lot of them, but one kind of steady theme of these pockets of light has been being able to perform a lot of COVID weddings. I'm about to perform my seventh wedding since COVID began. That might have been because I was a college minister before. But without fail, a favorite moment in these weddings is when the music sort of changes and the doors in the back open up. Or maybe you see the, the bride turn the corner in the outdoor open air venue. And 
you start to see the bride and her father slowly, gingerly step down the aisle. What I love about this moment is that I'm up there standing side by side with the groom, right? And I get to see the whole scene from his perspective as he sees it. It's such a neat experience. But as the bride in all her beauty, you know, her hair, her veil, her custom fitted white dress, perfectly applied makeup, and most of all, her glowing, growing smile as she sees the broom and takes in the moment. That's a, it's a wonderful scene. As that bride comes down the aisle to the groom, I love to do this. I love to sneak a peek at the groom and look at his face, beholding the beauty of his bride. And it's at that moment that I see the groom's eyes grow wide in wonder. Every time, no matter how manly the man, the lips start to quiver and the eyes fill with tears. And then it's then, at that moment, that I also realize every time that I may share the same view, but I am not seeing the bride like that groom sees the bride. The same is true for the bridegroom Jesus with his bride, the church. Yes, we may share the same up close and personal view of the church, but Paul's letter to the Ephesians reminds us that we do not see the church, Jesus' bride, like he sees her. We see a scared, teetering, makeup caked girl making vows that she can't possibly keep, and Paul turns her head to sneak a peek at Jesus, beholding the beauty of his bride eyes wide with wonder, lips quivering, tears streaming down his cheeks. He sees you and me, the bride, presented to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Do you know what Jesus is doing through the letter of Ephesians? He's pointing to his church, to us. And do you know what he's saying? I have a dream today. And that dream will change the very world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words uh, it is so hard to take in. It's so hard to take in. There's such a challenge to them, but there's such a comfort to them. There's such a way in which we see all the things in ways that were wrong, but we see all the ways in which you, by relationship with you, were right. We're all right. And you're making us without blemish, without sin. And I pray that that vision would capture our hearts this morning, that we would sneak a peek at you, Jesus, beholding us, beholding your work in this world. And would you help us just to see it like you see it? The joy set before you, the beauty of your bride. We ask this in your name. Amen.